What does it take to make workshops work? And how can we facilitate collaboration that sticks and leads to results? My name is Miriam Hatness, and with the Workshops Work podcast, I'm on the mission to find the magic ingredients that make workshops work. Today with me on the show is Thomas Lantaler. He's been here before. And today we speak about the MacGyver's mindset and what facilitators can learn from crisis management and vice versa. So stay tuned. And by the way, if you don't have pen and paper at hand to take your own notes, why don't you scroll down to the show notes to download my free one-page summary. Now, enjoy. So the time was enough, but because they didn't have that magic moment and say like, stop everything you do, this is not different, new situation, new task, let's do this all over again and then do it. They just waste time. And some that usually happens, that moment comes, but then it's too late. And in retrospect, it's always the realization, oh, we probably should have, you know, just stopped and, and looked at it and like, yeah. And the thing is, this, can, this you can learn, you can make this a habit, but it needs to be trained like with any other, with any other skill that we have, it needs to be trained. And sometimes it needs to be done artificially, just simply to get that habit into your thinking. And, and this is what I try also, particularly in crisis management regularly say, I sometimes I assign a person say like, this is your task. Every 20 minutes, this is your task. Just to check in, say like, so stop. Do we all know what we're doing? Is there anything that doesn't do anything? What is, are we all working in the same direction? And so on. And if you have that and say like, okay, this is your only task. You set, set a timer. That's it. I will be annoyed. I can also tell you that, you know, if I have to manage you guys, I will be annoyed, but this is very important. Ignore that. I apologize in advance. And it's simply about getting that habit going because after a while, it's not that person anymore. It's somebody else who does it. Somebody else is just like, okay, we haven't really stopped. Let's stop for a second. And it doesn't have to be every 20 minutes, right? But it, it needs to be done. It's, it's particularly that, that moment that, that kind of gets you back, refocuses. Because that's also what, what beautiful, the beautiful thing about children is in, in those situations. They're constantly focused on what they can do and what, they're not, what they can't do. A bit what we talked about in the beginning. And that's why they always have kind of control. They won't attempt things that they don't understand or go with their minds anywhere else. It's like, can't do anything about it. I'm here and now. This is where it counts. And that's for me, uh, if you have that skill, you have a huge advantage. And the problem is, again, the time pressure, right? This perceived time pressure that we don't have the time and everything has to happen now. And we're always a step behind and that you can change when you, through, through your scope of influence. Oh, but also the perception of time changes as time evolves. So instead of saying, okay, we could agree on something in two minutes only. So let's take these two minutes or one minute to reflect on it. Gold. And I can imagine that through the exercise of interrupting every 20 minutes to ask, okay, stop, are we still on track? That after a while, this becomes a responsibility in every one of the team where as soon as someone has the awareness, oh, I may be acting as a headless chicken, I'm doing something, wasting my time, or I'm not, I don't know what I'm doing, that they would kind of snap the group out and say, hey, everyone, stop are we still is still everyone on track because i feel that i'm lost and this is exactly what happens and i i have identified a couple of habits that i think contribute to this MacGyver mindset but also i like to do that in workshops that's a little exercise that i'm i can share which is just i either make it a game or make it a bit more more open but usually i like to make it a game and that's when i just simply assign a couple of roles it's do you know the game werewolf so you basically like you, be, you somebody tells a story and everybody gets assigned a card 
where they have um, a symbol on it. So there's werewolves, there's villagers, there is a healer, there is a you know little child, and they're all of different roles. And then there's a storyteller. So you close your eyes, you know, night in the village, and then the storyteller calls to different people to wake up. And the werewolves have to agree who they killed that night. And then everybody goes to sleep again. And the idea is to identify all the werewolves. So it's basically a discussion game afterwards, like who people think is the werewolf and why. And so it's 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 like that. So you have to identify the different roles and they have all different functions. And a little bit in in the idea that I work with is that you you turn it into a game, you assign certain habits to people. So for example, Miriam, you are you are today. So you get a card and say, like, Miriam, you're today or in a, in a group. It's very important to regularly exchange perspectives. So your task is to be not discovered as the guardian of the perspective exchanges. And uh, you have to, in creative ways, ensure that perspectives are exchanged regularly. So that we're not only look, all looking at one perspective, but we hear different perspectives and so on. Another habit would be identify assumptions. So, you know, so your your task is not be discovered and not share your, your task, but you have to make sure in a creative way that we're identifying assumptions. And what you do through that is on the one hand, you, you're building a skill already within at least one person, but it, it will, will be more afterwards. But on the other hand, you're also creating creative ways of doing it because it's boring after a while to say like, oh, we're identifying our assumptions, right? But since you shouldn't be discovered, you are identifying creative ways of doing it. Which I'm then about to ask, why would you ask them not to be identified? It's because of the boredom? It's, it's because of you don't want to kind of a habit becomes boring if you do it the same way all the time, right? And it becomes a routine and routines are a little bit dangerous when a little bit counterintuitive to the whole MacGyver mindset. But if you have just the habit and do it, do it in a creative way, right? like a bit of a, I don't know, different, different ways of checking in, different ways of checking out and, and, and all that you actually maybe keep the, the, the energy high around it and you can play around with the habit as well through that stimulating your creativity on top of it. So it's all kind of connected, right? It's a bit, bit systemic, the thinking there as well. And there's a number of habits and, and I have identified a few, but every team, every company has their own habits that they can identify. So we want to do this in our team. And basically it's just a method that they can apply. And the idea with the game is then that you basically can say, the one who wasn't discovered wins or the one habit that gets the most points. Cause you can also say like, so here's all the habits that were distributed. Which one did you feel the most during this workshop? And then they say, Oh, we, we thought we constantly questioned our assumptions without even knowing it. Most points you win something, right? So you can gamify this a little bit, but it's really all about creating those habits for, for this, this open mindset, this MacGyver mindset in a way. Fascinating. Did you write that down somewhere? Or is it in your book, this game? It will be in the book, and I'm actually making a facilitator tool right now. Awesome. Because I, after I asked the question why it's important to add the restriction that they must not be identified, I came up with two more reasons why it's actually good. One is you don't want anyone in the team who becomes the fact checker. Oh, You applied an assumption, I discovered you, or again, the same perspective. <laughs> Let's yeah, change right. that. So you don't want to have the Oberlehrer, how do you call mm -hmm. it, the head teacher. And the other one is, as soon as something becomes too much of a routine, we lose our sharpness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because we have the impression, ah, oh, we're doing this other, just, yeah, okay, checking the box. Yeah. And you don't really pay attention. Why, when you have to 
make sure that you're not identified while changing perspectives. You must remain sharp. And you can also have, you can play around with that, right? So you can basically say like, if there every break, if you don't want to make it a game at the end of the day, you play around and you distribute the rules differently so that different people have different habits. So I, you know, you had perspective first and now in the next, in the next one, you have another one, which would be making space for emotions. So you, you practice also the different habits yourself. Mm -hmm. And through that, you basically, everybody has had the habit once or has, you know, tried the habit once and, and this becomes your thinking. So you, you internalize the thinking, oh, we have to make space for emotions. This is a very important habit and we have to exchange perspectives. Somebody else in the team might have also the emotions, but might also have the assumptions. Or a third one in the team might have, yeah, we have to, for example, learn from other sectors regularly. So basically, you know, okay, how would they do it? How would they solve this problem? Just to simply to simply bring in these these different habits into the team, and and they will even if you don't practice them daily and always, they will come in handy. It's it's again a resource that you're building up. Yeah, and brings it's us resource. Yeah. yeah. Back to MacGyver and the toolbox. Back I think to the the topic of this conversation, which facilitators can learn from MacGyver. This is a little bit what we discussed in, in the workshop and never done before was how what facilitators, uh, not MacGyver, but what facilitators and crisis managers have in common. And it's uh, surprisingly much. And because it's not only the skills, but it's also the mindset. It's it's the mindset. It's the abilities. It's the, the you know, things that, that you would underestimate that, that facilitators have because nobody would maybe call themselves a crisis manager from the facilitators, at least in a workshop. They didn't at the beginning, <laughs> but there was really a realization that there's a lot more in common. And that's also to do with that crisis is such a loaded word. Because if you, if you demystify it, which we kind of do through our conversations right now, you realize there's a lot, it's a change situation, a radical change situation where decisions need to be made. And those decisions should be based on options for the, for the problem identified. How similar is that to a workshop? It's very often exactly the same. And, and the context is also the same. It's, you know, yeah, we as facilitate now from a facilitator perspective, what do we know about workshops? Nothing. What do we know about how, what comes out of the other end of a crisis? Nothing. We have to deal with people, people dynamics. It's the unknown. We try to create opportunities, try to facilitate opportunities, share perspectives, bring people together, build safety, which is lacking in a crisis. So we are assuming that it's also lacking in a workshop. So there's a lot of, a lot of those things there as well. And we try to deconstruct mental models and approach things differently, right? And the, the list is way longer than that, but those are a few things that those have in common. We have restricted resources that we need to use in new ways we, we we try to make a plan which i i never like crisis management plans for me are the most dangerous things because you rely on them we make a plan and we have discussed this several times also also on linkedin in, in comments agendas yeah they have a function they can be guidance but that hardly ever works out that an agenda is exactly what's going to happen at the end of the workshop because it's you don't see the room right you don't know the people uh, you don't know how many people, you don't know any other restrictions that, that can come up. So you might have to deviate from that. And that's fine. But you've got for, for yourself, you've got an idea laid out. And the crisis management plan should be nothing else than that. It should be maybe give, giving an idea of what we could do, but you never know what's going to happen. No crisis can be predicted. The topic might be predicted. Yeah, there will be another pandemic at one day when this one is over. 
but what and how and which virus and how this is going to look, nobody knows. So these, so the plan might not be valid, right? And holding on to it is a little bit what we've discussed earlier in this in in this episode is when you really with the teams that get stuck on their on the original plans and they have to carry it out. And that's just what what I often experience with crisis management plans. It's like, oh, no, you know, it's not in the plan. Yeah, but then you're not solving the, the actual issue right now. You're you're sticking to the plans. So you're focusing on the wrong thing. Same for us facilitators. An agenda is yeah, it's good, but it's not the most important thing. Crisis plan, as much as a workshop plan, might rather consist, when I think back of the beginning of our conversation of what is the problem or perception of it? What are the resources we have? Elements, yeah. Were the individuals involved? And the resources you, you pointed out before is, is a key, key thing. Yeah. We, have, we come with this bag of resources. We might need a fraction of them or we might need many of them. We don't know. It's always up to the team. And and your whole work, your whole podcast and, and the work that you do is about building those resources, making us on the one hand aware of how much we actually have. And on the other hand, building those resources through learning from each other, through pushing the boundaries, through saying like, because the whole never done before is about reinvention, is about the MacGyver mindset for facilitators. It's like, so what can we do what we haven't done? Let go of, of conceptions or concepts that we've had for, for years that everybody works with. Let go of them. And what happens? And so that the whole, this is basically very much linked to the MacGyver mindset and, and stimulating it also in our facilitators. As a facilitator, do you ever find yourself stuck in a rut using the same activities over and over again? Or do you find yourself without a plan B, even though we know that things never go according to plan? That's why we made Facilitator Cards. I'm Meg Bolger. I'm a professional facilitation geek and the CEO of Facilitator Cards. Facilitator Cards are the helpful nudge you need to get more creative in your workshops. They're a pocket-sized tool that you can use offline to create agendas and backup plans for your virtual and in-person facilitations. And for workshops work listeners, you can get a free set of wet erase markers to use with your facilitator cards by using the code workshopswork at facilitator.cards. That's facilitator.cards and enter workshopswork at checkout. What makes a workshop fail? You will get the same question from me that you get two years ago. I was expecting the question. I know you like it. For me, workshops never fail. They never, they don't because it's always about the perspective that you have on it. So if you say, okay, the goal in the workshop is we identify the problem and you might not identify the problem, you still have a learning of why it didn't work to identify it. Because you can, you can go into that. It's all about the questions that you ask afterwards. Like, so what happened in the workshop and what are we taking away? I'm generally not such a big fan of working with goals because they take also away the flexibility of where the process is going to go. I'm trusting the process. And yes, we can come in with the ambition that, for example, we want to discuss, you know, resource inventories. How can you do that? And we can show the method and so on. If this works with this particular team, I don't know. If the team buys it, I don't know. But what I learn is exactly that. So is it the receptive method? Is it something that people can relate to? Is there anything methodologically I could have done? And for that, the workshop didn't fail. So it failed maybe for the original topic and intent. But for me, it didn't fail. And maybe for the participants, it didn't fail. If we point out like, oh, you gave me feedback. You actually were actually a peer group that helped me develop this product. You saw that this doesn't work. You might walk away with ideas. So there's always something in it. And that's why workshops don't fail for me. Thank you for the reminder. I just want to double check. I'm so <laughs> I am not a crisis. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and 
Yeah, it's a good reminder that we don't learn from things that go too smooth. If everything works out as planned, there's very little space, if any, for learning. And this is a huge oversight. I'm so glad you bring this up because I, when I work, learning is another topic, <laughs> crisis, of course, but, but when I work with people on learning, this is usually the first question I ask. So what is, what is going really well? And because what we overlook is exactly that reinvention part that we're talking about, because we've adapted to the crisis and there were lots of things that are going well, but our natural focus is on, so what didn't work so well and completely forgetting that we still got through the crisis. We still adapted. We found new ways of doing things that all disappears with that mindset. Well, that is actually what we should focus on. So how did we find these solutions? How did we come to new ideas? new approaches because that's what that's what's actually important that's what got you through the crisis not what you didn't do so well and it's a simple shift of mindset but it's such an important one because there you might find out oh what really worked for us is that we actually left for example the ceos out of the crisis team they made the decisions afterwards based on the solutions that we developed but they weren't involved in the solution development they could run the company and they could way, make way more unbiased decisions that worked well for us Instead of saying, oh, the communication between the crisis team and the CEO, that was a bit tricky because sometimes there were misunderstandings. It's a completely different learning. And one is, one is very much worth and the other one is not so much worth because that might anyway look different the next time. And that shift is so empowering if you manage to, to do that both with teams and with, well, individuals, but also with companies where you say, focus on what's really working. What did you do well? How did you come to this solution? And there might be so many little nuggets, so many secrets in that. And, and it's, it's just powerful. So with a reminder, spoke a bit over an hour now, I think. Is there anything that you wanted to share, but you, we didn't touch upon yet? What I have played more and more with now in the past months also is to not only compare the roles between crisis managers and facilitators, but also really the, 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 the thought of working with crisis teams as a facilitator. So from the outside and, and how that would look. And I do think that's really something that, that we as a professional should be looking at because I think that can be change management, whatever we call it. But I think that, that as much as I would like to, the term crisis is not going to disappear anywhere. And those are usually the ones that are shut out the first time, the people that have the tools and the processes. I really like like this idea. I hope the community can can kind of um, is interesting to spar a little bit around it because I'm playing with some concepts and I'm playing with, with a little bit of ideas around that, how you can really also put that label on that we, because we, I think we have all the tools with all the competencies and you can, you can facilitate those teams as well, but there is probably also a little bit of daring from our side, because I don't think it's a natural thing that our natural thought even, which I've also noticed in the workshop to, as a facilitator to say like, I'm going to facilitate this crisis team now because it's, it's almost like coming into complete chaos, right? You, you're actually exposing yourself and like, okay, this is not going to be an easy one, but yet maybe that's exactly what they need. So maybe your task is there exactly to kind of give that order, give that, give that structure that they might not have uh, ground them, refocus them, you know, all those things that we can do with the tools that we have. So I do think there's a lot of potential in that, that field. If anybody's interested to discuss this further, I'm... Interesting one. Definitely interested. <laughs> and 
I wonder if you turn it around, what are the skills that crisis managers, those who call themselves crisis managers, but would not call themselves facilitators? What kind of add-on training or simply awareness would they need to um, expand their toolbox so that they can approach the next crisis meeting from this creative facilitative I think it's, I mean, this is not speaking really from my experience only. I think it's about focusing on people and dynamics first and foremost. And having worked with many crises, this is very difficult because you immediately sucked into this is what the context throws at me to what we discussed earlier. So I think that is definitely a skill and not being scared of emotions because also that, that the, the narrative of like, you have to be rational and logical in a crisis and it, I've said this for many, many years, but I've really, I've changed my mind completely because I think I've noticed that that's where the solutions lie. Behind our emotional reactions is where the solutions to the crisis lie. And if you don't explore it, on the one hand, you will not learn, but on the other hand, you will also, they will come back. You will just, you will be faced with these emotions at one or the other point, and then they're even more difficult to handle. If you're there as a crisis manager to go into that and in your own, I admit, like I have also an emotional reaction. So I'm actually really scared of this. Fine. What are you actually scared of? That you don't find a solution, that you lose your job, that you lose your face? Because those are often things that they're actually scared of, not the, the situation itself, but like, okay, I'm failing. I'm, I'm going to fail this. I'm not dealing with the responsibility. But the moment you have identified it and, and accepted it, you are a different person. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm scared of it. Okay, let's do this. And so emotions, definitely. Of course, there's always process tools, I think, that they can learn from, but this might be a bit more difficult because we also have other tasks. So that's why I think the facilitator role is an important one. But these two, I would certainly point out, dealing with people and maybe as an add-on, dealing with emotions. Exciting. And final question. Since you mentioned so you, you wrote a book, I'm looking forward to read it. <laughs> and to what extent do you think you can learn this MacGyver mindset and applying facilitation to crisis from a book as opposed to experiencing. So where's then the balance? What are the parts that you can learn from the book? And what are the parts where you really need the training, the experience and the routine that you described earlier that you would share through your workshops and trainings? I don't think you can really learn from a book in that sense, because I, for me, learning is, if I define learning what it is for me, it's three steps. It's, uh, it's getting the information, it's making sense of it, and then doing something with it. And so the book would fall in the former category. And I wrote my book primarily to make, make sense of my thinking. So it was really a, re a reflective book, which should be a guiding, could be a guiding model. So I hope that people take something out of it. But the idea is not that they copy what I what I did in the book or what, what I suggest to do in the book. I mean, yes, there's exercises in it and there's 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 practical ideas in it. But I, I'm a strong believer as with every exercise and every method, they they becomes a they become individual with the person who uses it. So if you use perspectives ping pong, right? You use it differently. You use it the way you want to use it. It's just a method. And I I use it differently and for different things and this is the beauty of it so you might get ideas and i hope you get ideas from my book and others maybe that stimulate your thinking maybe it's awareness raising of things that you didn't have on the screen before and then you are responsible to translate it into your world and once you've translated it it's all about trying 
And the MacGyver mindset is nothing else but practice and awareness. So, so what I do, and I really have I probably go a bit to the extreme already with it, but I, I constantly like whatever I look at, whatever I do, and you know, we've been working together and we have, um, you, you have also seen how I work. This is a constant question. Like, how could we do this differently? Like, is there anything we could do differently? And this is nothing else. I mean, this is a bit to the extreme, but it's, it's also the MacGyver mindset because it, this is how I think like, okay, is there something we can do with this, which we haven't done before? This is also what drives me a little bit both when it comes to facilitation, when it comes to new tools, when it comes to designing, because this is where I evolve, I develop as a person and it expands my skill set. But it's practice. It's also a habit, like questioning constantly, can we do this differently? Is there something I can do with this glass that other than drink from it, for example? Wonderful. Looking forward to your book. <laughs> and soon, soon. For the practice sessions and conversations on how to nurture our MacGyver mindset and how to turn facilitators into crisis managers. And vice versa. And vice versa. <laughs> Hell yes. Thank you so much, Thomas. It's always bliss and inspiration to speak with you. Thank you very much. I really like your questions. They make me think they uh, are challenging and they yeah make us explore. Thank you for staying tuned and listening to the show. I appreciate your attention as I know how busy you are. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and engage by sharing your comments and thoughts and visit workshops.work to download the one-page summary. I'm looking forward to seeing you back at the next episode and I wish you a fruitful day.